We are kicking off, can you believe it, Christmas series. Surprised by joy, you know, from the C.S. Lewis book, uh, gets its title, Surprised by Joy. Could we allow ourselves to be surprised by joy? Today I've, I've called the, the sermon, uh, Dare to Believe. There's these uh, theologians, um, uh, Bach and McKnight and Stein, who, who've said if, if we want to believe that God answers prayer, then we need to be open to the fact that He can work in impossible situations. We also need to be open to the fact that He works in a way and at a timing that He determines. And so where we're going to go today in the, the story they're going to read out of the beginning of Luke, this amazing story about these people, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, we're going to see that as we wait upon the Lord as we're waiting for him to answer prayers and might be some even deep things that are stirred up today. I'm not going to lie about that. You need to know there might be some deep things stirred up, but as we're waiting on God for those things, I think that we can fall to, to one of a couple of errors that we can either feel entitled or we can feel exhausted. But we want to move to a heart of expectation. We can sometimes feel entitled. God ought to do this for me because I'm so razzle-dazzle and pretty amazing, thank you very much. But he doesn't, so we can end up growing resentful. Well, there could be things, matters of our heart, heart cries that we have, and it takes so long and we get jaded and exhausted about it. But actually, he's calling us to be expectant. That's where we're going to go today. Um, before we do that, I just wanted to check in on you guys, how many of you are traumatized from Thanksgiving um, and, you know, dealing with those relatives, you know, the uncle with the cheesy teeth with the wild political opinions, um, or maybe you are the uncle with the cheesy teeth <laughs> and the wild political opinions. Um, but just to let you know, our day started on the beach. Can I have up that photo of... Um, so Christian surfers in Oceanside, we have each year the sandcastle competition, which is high stakes, let me say. The, the women versus the men gets very, very competitive. And, uh, and the reason I'm putting this up is, one, because it's a cool sandcastle of an octopus, which you can all absolutely tell that it is. Thank you very much. And the other reason is because this year the men won. And this is crazy because the men never win because, let's face it, we're not as smart as the women. We don't work as hard as the women. We all sit around drinking coffee and leaning on our shovels. Um, but it was super fun. But some of you, you need counselling after Thanksgiving. We've got a counselling centre for you. But we're winding our way down towards Christmas. And I kind of put that up as a joke thing. But also, just as a reminder that everything that we do at our church, this church that we love, is actually for those who are not our members yet. For those who are outside, even Christmas. Did you hear Nate talking about, you know, camels and unicorns and whatever we have coming up, you know, that, that we do that to love our community around us. Friends, why don't we grab open our Bibles here, and we're going to read this, and in fact, we're taking a standing, so if you would like to, please join me, we're going to stand up, and we're going to read out of the beginning of Luke, which is one of the biographies written about the life of Jesus, our most fulsome biography, or gospel, we call it, in, in, uh, in church. So here we are, Luke chapter 1, it's kind of the first half of the chapter, chapter, it's a big chunk, but it's going to be, I think, awesome, God's going to bring some things out here. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, 
since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home, and after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. God, thanks for your word. I just ask that today you'd give us a deeper understanding of what it means to dare to believe that you have good things in store for us. We know it doesn't always happen on our timeline and nor even in the ways that we would think. But Father, that that we might today have a greater understanding of you, of who you are, of who we are to you and you are to us. Amplify your voice, Lord, diminish my voice. We come to hear from your word. We thank you and we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, um, this week, um, it's been, as I've been thinking about what to talk about today, um, it's been quite a, a personal journey. And a reminder for me of the heartache of what it is to, to uh, not have children for many years. 
And by the way, uh, I'm going to share a story about my son, and I asked his permission uh, if, if I could share this story, and my wife also. It's a story. Can I have up the photo of the three of us? And this is our son Moses in the middle, or Mo. And we call this story the story of the Modo. So how's this? 15 years ago, V and me, my wife and I got a phone call from the Australian government and they said, hey, there's a, a kiddo in uh, an orphanage in Ethiopia. Um, will you take him? 11 months old. We said, yes. Hung up the phone and we sat there. We were in a shopping car park, car lot, and um, we'd just spent our last 200 bucks buying food for a Christmas party that we were going to have for all of our neighbours. We'd paid the rent a month, a month forward. Um, but other than that, we literally had nothing. And I said, honey, the next month, we're going to need about 20,000 bucks to buy flights, to pay the fees, to blah, blah, blah. And just for perspective, my salary that year, or our gross combined salaries, was less than 30,000 bucks. So this was an impossible thing. We had the party that night. It was great. The neighbours came round, and then we... Um, you know, cleaned up, and then we sat down, and V got out her guitar, and we just worshipped the Lord. I mean, you know, why should we sit there and harangue him? He knows our needs before we ask them. So we just, just praise God. It was impossible. Honestly, it felt like, well, that's the end of that. I guess we're not ever going to be parents. We'd already waited for uh, five years and, and spent really our life savings trying to do it. But that was, you know, okay. Anyway, over the next month, and this wasn't by us going and rattling the bushes or something like that, but folks would be ringing up, hey, you guys doing that adoption thing? I just want to help you guys out. Or email, hey, we've sent you some money to help. I know you guys want to be a family. In one month, $19,800 God provided, and we then went, flew out to the other side of the earth and, and, and so on and so the story goes and some of you guys have seen Mo, he serves in kids ministry, he's at the moment he's over in, in the, the youth ministry uh, now but it's funny you know, this week a lot of this stuff was being stirred up and, and thinking about the heartache that was going on for Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and there's going to be some stuff I think by the end of today that there might be some stuff stirred up in us and it mightn't be about that, it mightn't be about kiddos it might be about a longing for a spouse. It could be a, a longing for someone to come to know the Lord that you've been believing in and praying for for so many years. I mean, so many years. It could be a healing that hasn't come. It could be a reconciliation relationally. Um, then especially at this time of year, you're reminded about the fracturing. Friends, uh, we're going to end today with a dangerous and scary thought of actually writing down, as in all of us, writing down if there is something that we want to dare to believe on God for. So I'm just giving you a heads up. That's where we're going to go. As we get into the passage here, it does us well to remember who was writing it and kind of the context of it a little bit. Can I have up that picture? It's like a, okay, the freaky Luke picture. <laughs> There's a lot of ones that are even freakier than this. This is actually from an 11th century uh, Greek church. And I'm not saying that he had a wig or that he smoked a bong a lot and had red eyes, or that he only had three fingers. That's actually, a, it's a saintly thing, actually, when they do that. It means that the Word of God is about to be preached, but blah, blah, blah. And by the way, it's anachronistic that he had a book. Frankly, I should have chosen a different photo, now I say it. But <laughs> what I want us to, to think about is, is, who was he? Luke was a, a physician, he was a doctor, and more than that, he was a meticulous researcher. And more than that, he was someone who was well known to Paul. He was Paul's trusted traveller. 
as they uh, went on, on what's known as Paul's second missionary journey. He was also within what they call the apostolic circle, which means that he uh, was talking with those who had uh, been with Jesus during his ministry, had seen him crucified, had seen him after he had been resurrected. First-hand accounts. And because of all that, this guy Theophilus asked him to do something. And I, I just want to say I love how, how Luke begins by saying, look, many have undertaken to draw up accounts. It's not just me. I'm not the only one here. I'm not the only one who did it. He, he wrote the most fulsome gospel. In fact, Bible dorks out there, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. 27.5% of the totality of the New Testament in words was, was written by him. The most fulsome account. But I, I'm not the only show in town here. He says, I wrote down the things that have been fulfilled, we're going to come back to that, and have been handed down to us. Very technical language, which speaks of a, a trustworthy and proven evidentiary lineage that comes from these first-hand accounts from, from whom? From the eyewitnesses and servants of the word, the, the eyewitnesses, those who, who saw it, who saw this happen. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people. This is going to be important. You'll see why in a second. He said, so I've carefully investigated this. And by the way, this is, like a, this is considered a paragon of classic Greek writing. This, just, the, just the introduction that we're talking about because of the way that he goes, the way that he goes through it, the kind of sequential, uh, logical way he goes through it. He says, so I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And Theophilus was um, evident to, uh, evidently a, a patron who paid for Luke to do the research, kind of like the parents who pay for the universities nowadays. That's you, you're a patron. <laughs> but, but Theophilus was, and some people think, well, it just means lover of God, because Theophilus, like, or, or beloved of God, actually, I think it was an actual person. The fact that he says most excellent Theophilus implies that he was actually a Roman dignitary of some kind. There's been a theory because there was a high priest called Theophilus. But either way, the, the chances are that Luke was writing this as an apologetic, as, a, as a, a way he was sort of paid by someone to be a private investigator to check into these things because of his credentials to prove whether they were true or not for this guy, Theophilus. So why? So that he could know the certainty of the things that he's been taught. No, with certainty. But I want to come back to this, this first bit, the things that have been fulfilled. Now, in our, our day and age, when it comes to religions, it's always the newest fad. It's kind of like genes who always like, you know, they go up and down and in and out and you can never kind of keep up with them. Or me, I just hold on to the old ones and they eventually come back round. But religions, like it's all about the new and that, that wasn't the case in this day. It was about what is tried and what is tested and what is proven to be true by the accounts of many witnesses and especially something that's been prophetically spoken about before it comes into being. And I just want to say, I dove down this rabbit hole this week and I was talking to Ryan out the back. There was like a day and a half where my mind was blown again by the amount of times uh, that it's been proven Old Testament prophecies apply to Jesus. And some of them are broad, some of them are very, very specific. And how many are there? There's at least 300. Some rabbis think that there's 454. One theologian who did an exhaustive study there's five, five, said there's 591. But either way, at least 300. 
And some of them are very, very specific. I'm just going to read some of them out to you. For instance, this is from last service. For instance, okay, where Jesus was going to be born, 700 years before Jesus was born, this guy Micah said that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. 700 years before he was born. What were you doing 700 years ago? Don't you think that's mind-boggling? Seven, but actually, as it turns out, in Jesus' day, there were two Bethlehems. Whoops-a-daisy, well, does that double it? No, actually, he actually said Bethlehem Ephrathah, the specific Bethlehem that Jesus was born in. 700 years before he was born. Even that one statistic, mathematicians, I'm not talking about Christians and weirdos, I'm talking about actual people who believe in scientific method, say the chances of that happening is about 300,000 to 1. From 700 years BC till today, the cumulative population of those who have lived in Bethlehem, divided by the cumulative population of the earth, averaged out, is about 300,000 to 1. But what about when you add another statistic? Because it multiplies. It's not additional. That's not the way statistics work. What about, what about this one? The Christ would come from Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Judah, then David, down this lineage. And in fact, that's the case when you look at, at Mary, Jesus' mother, but also when you look at Joseph, his adoptive father. What about this? What about uh, the, there's at least 30 prophecies that specifically pertain to the day of Jesus' death, that he'd be betrayed by a friend, that the price of betrayal would be 30 pieces of silver. Kind of specific. That was 500 years before Jesus was betrayed. 500 years it's kind of specific right the money that money would be used to buy a potter's field he'd be forsaken and deserted by his disciples he'd be struck and spit on his hands and feet would be pierced that was a thousand years before jesus was crucified crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet like it's very descriptive if you go through um, the the whole of uh, of that um, he would be pray for his persecutors, his friends and family would stand far off, his garments would be divided by casting of lots again, a thousand years before... There's, there's so many, actually, this, like, this rabbit hole goes deep. Let me, let's just do some, you know, this will be like freshman mathematics, but if I picked 10 people and said, hey, guess what, you're going to win a you know, Maserati, and... Um, and here's a hat, going to put 10 names in the hat and had someone blindfolded pull out a number from the hat. What is the chance that I'd pull out your name from that hat if you were one of the 10 people? One in 10. Not 1%. Someone said that. You, you and me need to go back um, <laughs> to mathematics, but one in 10. Okay. But how about this? There's this, there's this guy, Peter Stoner, who was a mathematician. He was a, he was a um, professor in Pasadena and also at uh, Westmont College. He did a mathematical analysis of the predictions about Jesus. Not, he, he, was, he was a Christian himself, but he wasn't looking at it from the, the you know, religious heebie-jeebie point of view. He was looking at it from a purely mathematic perspective. And he picked eight of the core prophecies about Jesus, that they would be fulfilled in a person, and they couldn't have been engineered because you can't decide where you're born you can't decide that when you're a toddler, you're going to have to flee to Egypt because there's persecution going on. So some of the things, you couldn't have even been engineered. Just eight, not 300, not 454 or 592, 
Eight. Do you know what the statistical probability came out at? Can I have the number off on the screen? One in 10 to the 17. Now, three of us out there are like, wow, that's a lot. Some of us are like, that looks like a funny number. Yeah. Look, can we have up there what the actual number works out as? Okay. One in a lot. Okay. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. This same mathematician, and by the way, this was backed according to the National Statistics Institute, which I didn't know we had, but that's why we're paying too much taxes because, you know, we have things like that. They, they have verified this. Not looking at it from a Christian perspective, but just from, you know, that these, these statistics uh, are true. The statistical probability of this happening is the same, and I can't believe that someone worked this out, but if you covered the state of Texas, the whole state of Texas, in silver dollars, two feet deep, okay, the whole state, and you got one gold dollar, I don't know if that exists, but I just made it up, and, and you... <laughs> flung it out into the state of Texas somewhere, then blindfolded someone and had them walk out there and that they would, with one choice, pick the gold dollar. That someone, and just eight of the prophecies, mind you, not the whole lot. If you look at the core 48 prophecies about Jesus, the number becomes this. Okay? I think it's... I think it's uh, 10 to the 157th, it's, it's a big number, but just, just go back, it's too, it's too mind-boggling, right, so, so this one, what are the chances of this? Well, I got into all these statistics this week, there's this website called notyoumaysurelydie.com, but it's something like that, like chances of dying or whatever, you know, there's a 1 in 14 million chance that you will die from being struck by lightning this year, doesn't sound like much, but that's like 25 Americans. It's quite a lot. Like, you know, look outside. Or, or be eaten by a shark, I think it's one in 17 million. So more likely, you know, for lightning, but, or that you win the lottery, the, the big one, it's 302 million to one. But think about this. I did the math, and if you're a math person out there, please check me on this. I'm pretty sure that this is right. I checked it multiple times. The chances that you win the lottery this year by buying one ticket, then walk outside, then get hit by lightning, <laughs> is still 23 times less likely than that. Okay? So go and buy a lot of ticket. That's the takeaway from that. It's not the takeaway from that. The takeaway from that, the takeaway from that is Luke is saying these things have been fulfilled. There is so much stuff. It's actually mind-boggling. I'd urge you, and this is not, you don't believe in Jesus because of this stuff. I think it's getting bugs off the windscreen. There is a chance that Jesus isn't who he said he was. There is a chance that, you know, that, that, that we all have this collective delusion and you're here and you're the, you're the person who is just sceptical. There is a chance. I'm just saying it's not a very big chance. So, think about Christ. Theophilus was, he was wondering about who is this person? Who is this person in these stories? And, and Luke begins his gospel at a curious point, beginning by talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it's a specific couple. And it's in the year of King Herod, whilst he was king. And he was, he was king from 37 BC to 4 BC. And some of you are like, how can that work out? Because wasn't he there when Jesus... Well, yes, he was. But actually, our calendar's wrong. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but in 526... AD, a Russian monk got the dates wrong and we're about four to five years out. So anyway, he was the king. It was a specific time 
and there was this couple. And they were from the priestly line on, on both sides. They, they were anointed. They were people who uh, were from these, these descendants of priests from Aaron. And both of them, in verse 6, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. All the 613 mitzvah, like they actually did them, well, only Jesus is the only one who's perfectly done it. But these people had a heart to do it. If they messed up, they probably sorted things out. And these were good folks, righteous folks, to whom this terrible thing had happened. They were childless. Elizabeth was not able to conceive, it said. And, and I always think that, that needn't be Elizabeth's fault. I mean, maybe Zechariah had cross-eyed tadpoles. We don't know. But, but either way, like it's, sort of, it's ascribed to them both. And it's the thing that brings social shame. Not because of God, but because of us. Because humans, because we're pretty horrible sometimes. Folks, you know, who haven't been married, they have a heart for longing to be married, and we think, oh, there must be something wrong with them. Well, there's something wrong with them. They've got you as a friend, <laughs> right? Or we ascribe things to it. That, that's not, I want to clearly say, the, the Bible takes those two things apart, that, that bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. I'm proof positive, because Jesus loves me, Right? So, so don't, don't ascribe that. that was, and, and did you hear her cry at the end? God has taken this shame away from me. Think of the sadness involved in that. And, and where we're going to get to at the end, the, the prayers we're going to pray, some of them will seem dangerous. Some of them are loaded. Some of them have things around them that it might be one of your kiddos has walked from the Lord and, and people have judged you for that. And I just want to put all that aside as we look to the Lord together. But here we see that Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God and he was chosen by Lot. So in, in this time, there was 18 to 20,000 priests in, in the nation. And these folks, twice a year for a week at a time, they were broken down into 24 divisions, all the priests were, and Abijah was the eighth division. And he was twice a year, apart from the big feasts, you know, um, Pentecost and Tabernacles and all that, when they, all the priests would serve, they would go and serve for a week. This is providential because of what's about to happen. And more than that, Zechariah was chosen by Lot. Now, this would happen once in a priest's life that they could be chosen by Lot to go in and give the incense. About a thousand or so, you do the math, um, of priests in each division, cho one of them chosen by by lot twice a year to go and do it and he's chosen he goes into the temple and can i have up the picture of the temple friends um and he got and this this is a temple built by herod who was actually he's called herod the great but he was actually kind of a terrible guy killed his wife killed his kids killed some relatives because of power and blah 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 but he did build the temple he actually put a, a, a roman eagle on the front of it just to remind him you know but this temple, 172 feet long and wide and high, all the others are outside praying because they'd go in and do their prayers at 9am and at 3.30pm. And the priest would go in and light the incense. And oh, you can't really see it, but see the blue guy in there? He would go in there and he would light the incense, which would be symbolic of the people's prayers rising to God. It's this poignant moment been a priest for all these years and it says he's very old hold the clock according to numbers 8 
priests were to be between 25 years old and 50 years old. So he wasn't yet 50. He was like 49, like me. So really old in my kids' eyes. And his wife, it says, she also was advanced in years. Historically, chances are that, that she was younger than him, so she might have been in her mid-40s. Again, really old. Historically, probably true. In the later Roman era, maybe 50% chance that you would die before 10 years old. But if you lived beyond 10, then you might make it to mid-50s. Anyone who made it to 60s was old, old, old. 70s, almost unthinkable, right? So just adjust your, your time clock in your mind. But it's this poignant moment. He's chosen. And he goes in. And he's in there and he's lighting the candle. And then this angel appears. This angel appears and he's, he's like, G'day, mate. Because, you know, angels are Aussies. He says, G'day, mate. <laughs> and Zechariah's like, Oh my gosh. Biblically, whenever an angel appears, people are like absolutely struck to their core with fear and awe. Sometimes they fall down as though dead. This is a, this is a big deal. Can I have up that, the photo of Zechariah with the angel? Um, just because this is a, uh, well, um, William Blake did it and, um, the, the, in the 17th century, a, an English uh, painter. And um, because one, look how old Zechariah is. He's 49. He's had a, <laughs> he's had a lot of arguments with his wife. <laughs> and there's this angel and it looks all very quaint. But, but angels, friends, they're not like this. They're not like the cherubs that, that fling out the arrows. They're, they are terrifying they are terrifying. It's already a poignant moment for Zechariah. Just, just think of the context of this. His, his uh, Abijah, you know, his um, section is chosen and he's chosen within the chosen of the chosen and he's in there in this holy place and this angel appears and what does the angel say? Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Don't be afraid, mate. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. And even to say that phrase, there's some of us here who think, I don't think that can be true for my prayer. Because God hasn't answered it, certainly not in the way that I want him to, on the timeline that I want him to. But God's, God has heard your prayer. Your prayer has risen like a, a sweet smell to his nostrils. It doesn't mean that he will say yes to it. Praise the Lord that he hasn't said yes to all of my prayers. I would be in such a state the world would be in a dreadful state if God said yes to all Nick Gilmore's prayers. He loves us far too much for that. He knows better for us uh, than we do ourselves, right? But your prayers have been heard. And what were the prayers? Well, the prayers, I mean, he was a priest of Abijah. And so for sure, it would have been for the consolation of Israel that, that they would be able to escape this Roman oppression, that the people of God would come back and all of that. And, and also that intimate prayer pray for a child i'm exhausted by now god it's been so long i've i maybe i i began out entitled and and got you know uh, resentful but now i'm just exhausted i'm just i've given it away there's no chance god's heard your prayer god's heard your prayer. and what and what is god going to do your wife elizabeth will be your son and you are to call him john he will be wait for this he'll be a joy and a delight for you just as Moses is for me, 
and my wife and, and Tino and Evie, our, our other kiddos, are. They're a joy and a delight, even when they're giving me white hairs from arguing. Um, you know, not as white as that guy. But, but you'll rejoice. He'll, he'll be a delight to you. But, but dig this, and, and here's where we really start getting into the meat. For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. And he's not to take wine or fermented drink like it looks like a kind of a Nazarite vow. Certainly he's consecrated, set aside for a particular purpose. He is to be the harbinger. He is to be the one who comes in and speaks and makes ready the path for the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God. But he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. I just want to talk briefly here about the way the Holy Spirit interacts with us because it came up in a couple of conversations this week and I think it's worth looking at. And if you're new to the whole church thing, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. There's God who is the Father, God who is the Son, God who is the Holy Spirit. All are equal and all are God. The third person of the, of the Trinity surely is mysterious, but absolutely it is God. And God is the same yesterday, today and forever. He never changes. And that's one of the wonderful things about him. He's not capricious. He's not up and down, have bad days, wake out of the, come out of bed, you know, with a grumpy attitude. It's not like that. But the way that he interacts with us is different because we change and humans change individually and collectively. So for each of us at different times, and biblically this is the case. Can I have up that really boring looking chart on, on uh, I'm going to deal quickly with this. Um, but... But the way the Spirit operates in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and asterisk because it's really after Pentecost, but you know what I mean. Um, the way the Spirit interacts with each of us is, is different and is different according to these different times. The Holy Spirit, 88 times is named in the Old Testament, the Spirit's at work. A lot more times in the New Testament, 264 there's 18 different names used for the Holy Spirit. They're often very symbolic or kind of get your head around this type names. 39 different names in the New Testament. Some of them are actually shared. There's Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. There's Ruach Yahweh, the Spirit of the Lord. There's Ruach Hakadesh, Holy Spirit is, is used in both. There's these, these two ones, the oil of gladness, the oil of joy is in Old and New Testaments. There's this really weird one in Revelation, and I, I think it's Daniel, talks about the seven-eyed spirit, like which sounds freaky, except that it's symbolic of that the spirit sees everything, the spirit knows everything. In my Bible next to that I've written, uh-oh. <laughs> the spirit, but, but how, does it, how does the spirit interact with people? In the Old Testament, there were some people in a temporary way for a specific thing, Post-Pentecost, it's to all of us, if, if we are open to receiving the Holy Spirit, it's in an enduring way and it's comprehensive from the, the top to the bottom of us. We're sanctified, we're, we're changed. What about how it does it? In the Old Testament, there was a special anointing. Guys like Bezalel to build the first temple was gifted with these things. In the New Testament, it's somewhat similar. We're given specific gifts, but we're also given the Spirit fruit. We're also given the Spirit hope. And, but here's where I want to really talk about imminence and transcendence. Imminence. They say that the, the difference between the Old and the New is in the Old Testament, the Spirit would be involved with God's people, with God's people, but in the post-Pentecost New Testament, in God's people, the Spirit is in us. And one thing that never changes is the transcendence, the power of the Holy Spirit, because the power is God. It's always total and it's always total. But, but here we see that, that Luke... 
accounts for the angel saying the Holy Spirit is going to be in this baby even before he is born. And what's he going to do? He's going to bring back many people of Israel. He'll be going before the Lord and in the spirit and power of Elijah. He won't be Elijah, but he will be in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents. This thing of coming back and turning to the same word, it means, it means actually means repentance. John's message was one of repentance, that we first need to turn before we embrace. That me, I think I, you know, can get by without God. I can do my own thing. I've got my own gig going on here, God. I don't need you, independent of you. Hang on, Nick, you're an idiot. Turn. Then embrace. John's message, getting people ready for the embracing of God, for the message of grace, God's forgiveness, unwarranted, poured out upon all people, begins with a turning. That's John's part in it. And even here, it's a reference to the Old Testament. In Malachi, chapters 3 and 4, these words are spoken. Keep in mind, 420 years before Gabriel met with a guy called Zechariah in a temple. 420 years. God says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare a way before me. And in chapter 4, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents and the hearts of those weird and awful relatives at Thanksgiving to each other, to reconcile each other. But it's, it's talking about the beginning of this turning, the turning from our own ways to the point of being reconciled. This is what he's going to do to make ready a people preferred, uh, prepared for the Lord. But that doesn't mean no hardship. In fact, historical accounts say that Zechariah himself was killed when John was maybe one or two years old. When Herod, you know the Herod who made the temple, when he, it's called the slaughter of the innocents, when he heard there's this king, some say the king of kings who's been born, kill all the children in that area under two years old. That would have included John. But Zechariah, the story goes, refused to give up to the Roman soldiers the whereabouts of Elizabeth and John, so he was killed. And more than that, John's life wasn't without hardship. I mean, biting the heads off locusts and eating wild honey, you know, that's good if you like camping, I guess. Um, but it's kind of lonely. But then also he was in prison later on. And in, in Luke chapter 7, it, it shares this story about that. And whilst Luke was in prison, he sends some of his followers to Jesus to say, we just want to check, you are the anointed one, right? You are the Messiah, right? And Jesus says to him, go and tell John what you see. You see blind being made to, to be able to see. You see those who run well being healed, those who have demonic oppression being freed from it. Blessed is he who doesn't fall away on account of me. It's like actually an implicit rebuke. Say, yeah, I am. But I'm not the Messiah who's going to come in, throw off the Romans and, and do what you want me to do. I'm going to do this thing and it's going to be more amazing than you ever could have imagined, John. And actually, you're going to die in prison. Can I have that picture by Caravaggio? Um, this is an Italian uh, 16th century 
uh, painter. And he got really weird towards the end. He did heaps and heaps of paintings about John being beheaded. But either way, <coughs> he was beheaded under Herod Antipas, the son of the other Herod. Herod Antipas's, um, um, I guess, stepdaughter came in and did a saucy dance. And he said, hey, I'll give you anything in the kingdom that you want. She said, I want the head of John on a platter. See, just this awful story. I actually get the photo off because it just makes me so sad thinking about it. But, but it, this, this is the call that's on this guy's life and it's, it's brutal and it's bloody and yet it's also amazing. And that's what life this side of eternity is like. But Zechariah says to the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. I mean, dude, I'm 49 and she's 43. Come on now. And the angel says to him, I'm Gabriel, dude. I stand before God. You, you can go over there to the thinking spot. <laughs> in our family, we have the thinking spot. I'm not always assured a lot of thinking goes on in the thinking spot, but it's a place to go, to be quiet, to shush down, shush the shusha, to go down and to just think about things a little bit. John comes out of the temple after the angel saying, this is going to happen going to happen at the appointed time which is shorthand for saying as God wants in the timing that God wants in the way that he wants he's going to do more than you ever could have asked or imagined you should have an expectant heart Zechariah but he comes out of the temple and all the people are waiting because he's been in there a long time they want the they want the carriage obey blessing you know Lord bless you and keep you they want that they're all hanging around for that he's been in there like a long time I don't know whether they're looking at the sun or you know he finally comes out and somehow through charades he lets them know that this crazy thing is happening and like, you know, like oh, you know, I don't know how he did it <laughs> he couldn't speak you know but they realized that something had happened something more amazing than they were expecting that day when they just went along to temple to lift up their prayers to the Lord then he goes home to Elizabeth they have a snuggle she becomes pregnant and it's wonderful but don't you think it's curious that she keeps it private for five, years, uh, five months? And, you know, a lot of ink has been spilt by theologians saying, well, she was obviously just spending a lot of time praising the Lord and this amazing thing happened. And I'm like, well, maybe. I actually think it was more practical. We don't know the backstory. Had they had, they had miscarriages? Had, was it just too wild for her to think that this could happen, this thing that... We prayed about for so many years, expecting that, and 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 maybe we got a bit, you know, a bit entitled about it. Then we just ended up becoming exhausted by it. But now it's happening. It can't be every every day and every week as you got bigger and bigger. She waits for five months before she goes public with it. But she says that those those words, "Oh God, you love us. You've taken our shame away. Shame not put on her by God." but put on her by people because we do that. I'm sorry that I do that. I want to invite our, um, our team to come back out. We're going to end here. In fact, let's all stand up so we can get a little bit of blood flowing because I want us to do something, <coughs> excuse me, I want us to do something a little bit scary, a little bit dangerous even. And some of you might write 
like to write this down. Some of you might want to do it on your phones. You've been looking at Twitter on for the whole, you know, of the sermon. That's totally cool. That's no worries at all. But I want you to do something. Get out either your phone or a bit of paper with a pen. Don't look at me. Look at your thing. Okay? And what I would like us to do, those of us who are feeling brave, this doesn't apply to you if you have had everything you've ever wanted and you don't have any prayers whatsoever. Be blessed. Wow, I want to hang out with you. You must be amazing. But for those of us who've been praying about something, and it might be something seemingly small, or it might be a massive thing. It might be the spouse that we long for, but that's not been the journey thus far. It might be that child who's been wayward and we're really praying for them. It might be a, a reconciliation that we, we desperately want. It might be a healing of something that we've been waiting upon God for. I want you to do something. I want you to write, dare to believe, or type. Write or type, dare to believe across the top. Then I want you to put the date in there. November 26, 2023. Actually, it should be 2028, but that's another discussion for another time. Don't worry about it. Just write down the agreed date, okay? Then even one word, or whatever it is that you know, this is just between you and the Lord. I'm not going to have you show it to someone. Don't worry about that. It wouldn't demean you. God's... God doesn't do that. But something that you have been longing for, praying to him for, do you want to be in that place of expectancy, of daring to believe that he is going to do that, or that, and something greater, or something greater entirely? As these guys lead us in worship, we're going to lift up these prayers before the Lord, a sweet aroma to him, and uh, I was going to get a big incense stick and, and burn it, but then there's these California laws about fires and stuff. So just imagine that. But I want you to know that it, it mayn't work out in the way that you think. And that's okay. I haven't shared much about this, but you guys know a few years ago my dad passed and um, I was actually pretty mad about it because he is such a good guy. I thought there's so many people who should have died before him, including me, actually. So many rotters out there, you know. So I was, I was really sad about it. But then a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, I was preparing to do a funeral for a buddy of mine, Paul. And, um, and I had this, the night before, I had this dream, or a couple of nights before I had this dream, and I never dream. I'm like the guy who, like, work, 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 like a dead man, up and on with it. That's, you know, but I had this dream... And, uh, and in the dream, it was my dad and Paul were there with the Lord. And um, they were both well. And um, they were both more real. I don't know how to say it. So I, I say that because you might be thinking, well, just if I write this thing down, that God's going to do it. We're praying, we're doing this thing, incense and... Well, he, he might, or he may do something different. And that's okay. An expectant heart can encompass the both, that we might dare to believe that God has good for us.